So he took out two Bibles and opened them to the story of Jesus. Then he grabbed a knife or maybe a razor and began cutting up one Bible and then the other. Working meticulously, Jefferson sliced out the parts of the Bible that he believed and pasted them into a new book of blank pages. The rest, the parts he didn't believe, he left behind in two maimed and mutilated Bibles. He created his own Bible, made up of the bits that he enjoyed or believed. Jefferson was a man of his age. You see, as a result of cultural forces that he was riding the wave of, he believed himself, like many of his peers did, he believed himself to be above and beyond the simple folk of the past who wrote this book. He believed that he could sit as judge, jury, and executioner over the Bible and declare for himself what the truth of these matters was really all about. And we live in an age that perhaps holds similar ideas, particularly when it comes to critiquing the Bible. We live in an age that puts itself above the Bible, and we sit as those in authority over it. Oh, it's an old book with old ideas. We are the future. We live in 2018. We live in this day and age. And several years ago, a group of anxious Christian leaders gathered in New York to listen to the teaching and the instruction of a man who was the, the former chief rabbi in the UK, Jonathan Sachs. And he said this to them, He said, there are moments in history, and we are living through one now, when something new is taking place, taking shape, when we don't know precisely what it is. There is a crisis within Western culture, a crisis of which the results lie all around us, he said. The collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family, the fraying of the social bond, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interest demands something larger. The loss of trust in public institutions, the build-up of debt whose burden will fall on future generations, and the failure of a shared morality to lift us out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, and relativism. We know these things, and yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. This is this day and age, 2018. Jonathan Sachs saying that. Now, as a church, we're in a teaching series that Martin Polly mentioned called Blueprint, where we're looking at God's vision for the church, what the church is meant to be. Two weeks ago, we said that the church is a dream that exists in God's heart, and it is a dream of a community of people centered around the Word of God and the Spirit of God, that we honor and uphold both the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Last week, we looked at what it means to be a Spirit-filled church saying that a spirit-filled church is possible when Christians, who, men and women who give their lives to Jesus, receive a baptism in, a drenching of the Holy Spirit that empowers them to live the Christian life. And actually last Tuesday, five people came around our house and we looked more at the baptism in the Holy Spirit and prayed for one another to receive power from God. It's something that going forward, I would love us as a church to be in the habit of regularly offering. If you missed last Tuesday but want to come, nevertheless, we would love to meet with you, to pray with you and for you that you would be baptized in the Holy Spirit, believing in the importance of 
that. Well, today we're talking about the Word of God and what it means to be a church that upholds the blueprint of being the pillar and buttress to the truth. The church centered around and meeting around the Word of God, the truth of God. We're going to look at that together. We're going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have a Bible and want to go there, you can follow along with us. And after that, we're going to just look at two questions together as we go. Before we get there, however, let me read this from 1 Timothy in the New Testament. This is what Paul writes to his protege, his Padawan. He says, I've come to you, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So he says, I, I hope to come. But in case I can't come, in case I'm delayed, I want to write you some stuff that's going to tell you how you ought to behave in the church, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. In a time like this of massive social change, the church is meant to be immovable. It's meant to be like a pillar that supports truth. If you've ever walked into one of those grand, maybe a cathedral or just historic building, you're grateful that the pillar does its job of being a pillar and doesn't suddenly have ideas and designs on being a door or a window instead of a pillar. The church, Paul says, is meant to be a buttress to the pillar, a pillar and a buttress to the truth. That is the word of God. A blueprint for the church is that it is meant to be a people who love and devote themselves to the truth and the gospel which is the message of our rescue and our hope. Christians are meant to be people who tremble before the word of God, who hang on God's every word and respond to whatever he calls them to do. We meet all sorts of people who tremble at all kinds of things. Often people tremble before celebrities. Oh my goodness, it's Justin Bieber. I tremble before him. My, wee, my knees go weak. I go weak at the knees before this person who can sing really well. Or we tremble before a leader who has power over our lives. Tremble before all sorts of things. Christians are meant to be those who tremble before and revere the Word of God. No matter how settled and comfortable your life is, one word from God. And we should be those who say, I'll go, I'll change, I'll do whatever you say. No matter how much disagreement there might be in my conscience or will, desire for something, the Word of God tells me what to do. The Christian is meant to be those who say, I'll do it, I'll obey. The Word of God, the Bible, is food. Well, I say the Bible, that's the Word of God contained also in the Bible is meant to be for us food for our souls and a light for our path. Psalm 119 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and it is a light to my path. It nourishes us spiritually. Jesus said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In a strange part of the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel is given a scroll from God and told to eat it. Eat the word of God. And he does, he eats it. And he said it tasted like honey in his mouth. The word of God calms us. Just as Jesus, who is the incarnate word of God, he spoke to a storm and it was instantly still. So it is when the word of God speaks into our lives, it brings calm. Well, compare Thomas Jefferson's attitude then 
with the attitude of these Chinese Christians who were filmed receiving their first copy of the Bible from some missionaries. Let's watch this. The quality of the video, not overly good, but I think we get the point. When was the last time you revered the Word of God and, nourished and felt the nourishment of this and of God's Word, Jesus, in your life? I remember as a child being given one of those Gideon's Bibles in an assembly um, and I didn't really think much of it at the time but then when things were low in my life there's that bit at the beginning where it tells you isn't it when you're feeling low and you're feeling sad whenever there's lots of questions you can find parts of the Bible and I remember as a teenager discovering this has got something for me there's a value in this the world those who aren't Christians need for the church to see the value of the truth of the gospel and to uphold it. See, in a world of fake news and half-baked commitments where fads come and go faster than anyone can say loom bands or fidget spinners, the word of God stands forever. Some of you are thinking, what on earth are they? It's just a fad. It's been and gone. (laughs) Long after we've all been here, um, long after we've all been confined to dust, the Word of God will continue to speak to people, to draw people to salvation, to transform lives. And it's the job of the church then to uphold, to love and to listen to the truth. One person has said the Bible is like an ocean. It's shallow enough that toddlers can play in it. And it's deep enough that sailors can sail in it. And there's lots about this book, of course, that's difficult for us to understand. There's a lot that we need to grapple with and engage with, and that's something that I'm going to address in a moment. But we should see, shouldn't we, that this book is meant to be for us, our blueprint for life. It's the words of God for us. Well, let's read together from 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read a little bit here or there and, and make some comments as we go and see how we're to behave as those who revere and uphold the word of God. This is what the Bible says. So Paul's writing to his, his servant or son in the faith, Timothy, and he says to him this in his last letter that he ever wrote. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God or spirited out by God. The same idea, the same word, the breath of God, the spirit of God is the same word. All scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, it comes from God and it comes from God in conjunction with the spirit of God. The word of God and the spirit of God are in partnership together. The word of God is breathed out in conjunction with God. And God didn't literally come and write the words on a page. He inspired human authors to write these ideas. Human authors with their own stories, within their own culture and context, but from God nevertheless. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In order that the man of God, or the messenger of God, or you could just say the Christian, may be competent equipped for every good work. The Bible is from God for a purpose. The purpose is to help Christians, help believers. That's why Christians have always gathered, at least weekly, to sit under the teaching of God's word as a way of saying, this is life for me. This is useful for me. It's here to equip me. Paul says then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you, this is Paul's like, look at me now, Timothy, listen up. You know, when I want to get my kids' attention and I really want them to hear, I'm like, look at me, look at me. This is what he's saying. I charge you, listen to me, in the presence of God, 
I make this vow. <laughs> it always reminds me of weddings. In the presence of God. It's a solemn occasion. There's something serious about this. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently. We, we know those phrases from wedding ceremonies. Well, Paul's saying, doing something similar here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, just in case you're not aware, is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, this is his charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. He says preach the word. He's not saying every Christian needs to deliver sermons. The word preach means to exhort, to declare. And actually early church historians say the way the church grew wasn't through fantastic oratory or oration and people delivering great sermons. The way the church grew was through average believers, house to house, gossiping and preaching the gospel among their peers, their friends, their contemporaries. And slowly but surely, the message of Jesus took root in the society and went on to change the world. And the first question then I want to ask the group, the Bible, the first question is this, how are we to do theology? How, what does it mean to be ready? And that's a difficult question. How are we to read the Bible properly for ourselves? And to answer that, I want to give us one principle and one acronym. The principle is this. We're to read the Bible, we're to do theology in humility and in community. That's the principle, to do it in humility and in community. We're to, every time we read the Bible, we're to start by assuming this is right, I'm wrong. We approach it humbly, teach me. When we hit a tricky text that seems to say something that offends us, our first response ought to be, I'm probably wrong. Help me to understand this, not the other way around. But we're also to ask the question about community. What has the church believed about this historically and globally? When we ask those two questions, or, or, or when we approach the Bible in that way, assuming that we're all, in all likelihood wrong and the Bible's right, and asking the question, what has the church believed about this globally and universally? It guards us against all kinds of errors. And what it means is if we have an idea, we read the Bible and think, I think this means X to me, but no one else in the history of the world, in the history of Christianity, has ever thought that before, the chances are you're wrong. <laughs> Just put it to you, the chances are it's not the church that's wrong, it's you. No one reads the Bible in a vacuum, meaning all of us read the Bible having been influenced by our past we each have our different personalities and preferences. Each of us are responding to different pressures, social pressures and otherwise. That means that we want to read the Bible in a particular way. Humility means reading and understanding the Bible in community with the church. God speaks, we believe, through Christ in the Spirit to the church by the Scriptures. What that means is we're to approach the Bible not and revelation and authority, not bottom up but top down. Let me explain. See, most people outside the church and increasingly people within the church because of the culture we're in, we read the Bible starting with a bottom down approach. What does this mean to me? If I read something and God says something to me through the Bible, then I assume I'm right. And then I'll look for a local church that agrees with me. 
And if I can't find a local church that agrees with me, I'll look for a denomination that agrees with me. If I can't find a denomination that agrees with me, I'll, I'll look in the rest of the Bible to find a God that believes in me. And if he doesn't, well, I need to find a different religion because I'm right, the local church, the global church, God is wrong. It's a caricature, but in the way that a lot of people read the Bible, that, that comes into it. Instead, reading it humbly means to read it top down. We receive it from God and then we receive what the church worldwide has said about something. And then we look to, believe, look to receive what a local church in particular teaches about a subject. And then we look to see what it means to us as individuals. So that's the principle. Read the Bible in humility and in community, which guards us against error. The acronym I want to introduce is the acronym because we're English, it's got to have a cup of tea in it somewhere. And we've talked about this before, I think. So the acronym is this, tea and toast. Tea and toast, um, which is just a helpful way of remembering. When it comes to understanding, particularly some of the trickier parts of the New Testament, for example, the acronym tea and toast is useful. It stands for the New Testament, obedience assumed, symbols translated. So if you've ever read the Bible in the New Testament and thought, should I apply this to my life? Does it mean this to me or is it just cultural? Often you have that where someone will say something, what does the Bible say about X? And say, well, it says this. And the reply is often, oh yeah, but that's just cultural. That was just true in their day, in their culture, but not in our day. Everything in the Bible is cultural. It's written by human beings in a culture. Everything is cultural. But we still believe that it's relevant for our lives. How do we work out what's relevant? Well, it's my belief that the, the Bible, when properly understood, is all true. The Bible, when properly understood, is all true. The key in that sentence is the phrase, when properly understood. And that's where a lot of the, the challenge takes place. That's where community is required to read what um, academics or scholars have said about something, to listen to what uh, the eldership in a church say about something, to respond to those things in order to understand the Bible properly. Obedience is to be assumed. Unless... Unless it's clear from the text that we shouldn't obey it. So Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. For it's better to enter eternity maimed with one eye than it is to enter hell with both eyes, is what Jesus says. Now, the context in the Sermon on the Mount and the literature type is clear. Jesus is using hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. How do we know this? We know this because none of Jesus' disciples chopped off body parts. <laughs> No one ever did that because they understood Jesus was using a figure of speech. But in other parts of the Bible that were equally outlandish and outrageous, where it's clear that the intention is that we're to obey it, that's what the Christians have always done. So we're to assume obedience and we're to translate symbols. There are some things in the New Testament that are very clearly cultural symbols that don't mean the same thing to us as they did to them. So greet one another with a holy kiss, for example, is an example. Someone once said, what's the difference between a holy kiss and a normal kiss? The answer is about two minutes, um, which I don't think is from the Bible. Um, but in, in a Middle Eastern culture, and in many cultures today, it's, it's the practice to greet one another with a kiss, whether it's one cheek or two cheeks or three cheeks. I don't, three cheeks? One, two, three, that would be. Um, I don't know. It, in this society, though, to greet one another with a kiss, particularly if you're a man greeting another man, it doesn't always convey brotherly affection. It often would uh, uh, imply romantic affection. And so we translate the symbol 
because we're emotionally suppressed Brits to a handshake, or if you're slightly more liberated, you've received the baptism of the Spirit, a hug. I don't know. But you translate the symbol. That was a joke. I'm not telling anyone off for just shaking hands. Translate. So another one would be in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, a, a woman who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her body. Or it's dishonorable for a woman to pray with her head uncovered. Because, again, in his society, a Middle Eastern culture, it was respectable for women to cover their heads as a sign of, author- or sign of submission to authority. For a woman to walk around and, and pray and engage in religious things with her, with her head uncovered is a display of licentiousness and a lack of submission, or in their culture, sexual promiscuity. In our culture, for women to not put uh, scarves on their heads does not imply sexual promiscuity. that's not a symbol that we uphold. So what do we do with that text? Well, we translate the symbol, the principle in place, in 1 Corinthians, say, is a principle of submission and proper respect of authority for women and for men, but in that case, for women. So the the New Testament, obedience is assumed, symbols are are to be translated. These two things, this principle and this acronym, are helpful ways of us answering the question, how are we to do theology? How are we to be ready on all occasions? Billy Graham was a man who passed away or went to, went to glory recently. He has preached the gospel. He's a Christian evangelist and preacher. He's preached the gospel to more people globally than any other person in history. I think it's estimated that something like 215 million people he preached to live, as well as billions through radio and the internet. And he has preached in over 185 different countries and principalities. He's held audiences with the good and the great, from Winston Churchill to the Queen. And he was known as someone who declared the Bible's message faithfully. He would often be seen waving a Bible and saying, the Bible says, or in his Southern American, the Bible says, which I think sounds pretty good in my head. It sounds like Billy Graham. Maybe in live it isn't. The Bible says, he would say, and then we just declare over and over, the Bible says, the Bible says. There's some photos here of um, Billy Graham preaching to mass audiences of people, just huge crowds come to hear him. Well, this and his influence almost didn't happen because there came a moment in his life where he had to wrestle with the authority of Scripture. Am I going to believe this? Or am I, like Thomas Jefferson, going to cut my favorite bits out and create a new Bible? At the time, he was working with Youth for Christ, and a friend of his, Charles or Chuck Templeton, started challenging the Bible's authority, saying that he'd seen a new way of reading things. And Billy wrestled with these ideas for a period of weeks and months, until eventually surrendering in this way. One night, he writes in his biography, at Forest Home, I walked out into the woods and set my Bible on a stump. So it was this woods by the house that it would often be found praying in. Put the Bible on the stump and he cried out, Oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions that Chuck and others are raising. And then he fell to his knees and he said, Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this to be your inspired word. 
This isn't an argument for not thinking and leaving your brain at the door. It's an argument for a humble faith that says, with all of my ability, I will work as hard as I can to understand this, but I will approach it humbly and believe this book by faith. The result can be seen in the life of Billy Graham and how it responded. I think it was Thomas Aquinas, the church father from the medieval period. He said, I believe in order that I may understand. There are some things that you just, you don't know what it's like until you're in the skin. And it's once you're inside the skin, you're living the life, things start to make sense for you. If you've never been in love, it's hard to understand love. It's only in being in love that love makes sense to you. It's the same with scripture. There's a lot about it I don't understand, but I believe a trust in order that I may understand. Okay, let's look at the last little bits of 1 Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 4. In verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off, wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So the first question was, how are we to do theology? The second question is, how are we to fulfill our ministry? Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. How do we find success as a church? How do we maintain a faithfulness? And for this, I think we need to understand the context and culture that we're living in a little bit more in order to then get better at applying the Bible as best we can. The sociologist Philip Reef talks about three stages of culture, which I think we have some diagrams. He says there's, there's in, in culture, there's three stages. A pre-Christian culture, a culture that believes in an abundance of spirits and demons and malevolent forces and angels that control everything, typically a pagan society, and then a Christian society, that is, that believes in those things, but seems that they have come under the lordship of Christ, that Jesus is in charge and rules. And now we're living in a third culture, which is a post-Christian culture. The color has changed on the slides. Never mind. Um, we're living in a post-Christian culture. And the challenge of Christians now, living in a post-Christian culture, is how do we reach out to and love people in a culture that isn't Christian? Because typically the attempts to reach a pre-Christian culture were one thing, but those same attempts aren't going to be effective in a post-Christian culture. And what would often typically happen are different things. In, um, in missionary history, Christians who went from a Christian culture to a pre-Christian culture would go with the gospel and they would tell people about Jesus and they would tell people about the word of God, good things, but they would also, you might say accidentally, take aspects of their earthly culture with them. So if you go to parts as remote in the world or as far away from England as you can go, places like the Philippines, they will be singing songs from 17th and 18th century England. They took the gospel, but they also took a lot of the English sensibilities and English songs with them. They colonized that culture, which is the criticism of missionaries who did that. We, however, now... As Christians looking to reach a post-Christian culture, we face a different challenge. The challenge for Christians trying to reach a post-Christian culture isn't that we colonize it and make it Christian or make it like us. The challenge is that Christians 
get colonized by the post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in. The um, social commentator Mark Sayers, he says this, Despite the contemporary church's decades-long quest for cultural relevance, it continues to struggle to gain ground in the secular West. The aging profile of the church inevitably means that many churches are demographically disappearing. He says the church, in trying to reach post-Christian settings, has, has tried to appear as relevant as it can to that society. So from the 80s onwards, there began the church relevance movement. Uh, you might say a stream that we found ourselves or find ourselves in. And that is churches that work harder trying to show post-Christian society that the Christian message is relevant to them. So people wear jeans to church and we have guitars and uh, we use marketing and social media and we do everything we can to preach messages that show how relevant the message is to your life. There's nothing wrong with that. But Mark says is saying, despite decades of trying to do that, the church in the West is still facing disappearance because of an aging congregation. And the fact that post-Christian culture is not receptive to that form of evangelism. So what often happened is that people in, in relevant churches, they would say, this isn't really working. I mean, we've, we've tried showing the latest film as a sermon and talk about that. We've tried doing everything we can. Instead, we need to go into the culture. We need to ditch church and go in coffee shops. And we need to just drink coffee and you know, talk about the Bible casually. We need to do away with authority structures. We need to do away with official titles. We need to do away with long sermons. We need to become as fluid and as liquid as we can in order to reach post-Christians. The trouble is in doing that, Christians get colonized. Because post-Christian England and West, the Western world is a beautiful, relaxing, you know, equality. And it's a lovely place to be if you're healthy and wealthy. And Christians would get, and the churches that would send Christians into those coffee shops would, in a few years' time, no longer be Christians or find themselves Christians. They would become colonized by that world. And so the challenge for the church isn't that we become more and more relevant, isn't that we speak the language of the world more and more. The challenge in the church now is that we become more and more resilient. We learn to hold on to the truth. We learn to build lives centered around the truth. We need to be Christians who read and hold on to the Word of God. You know, 50 years ago in the average church, most, almost every Christian knew the vital importance of having what was called a daily quiet time, where you would read the Bible every day, come before God, read it, apply it, try to live it. They knew the importance of that. And then they also knew the importance of being with God's people every Sunday. These days, if you're a Christian who reads the Bible once a week, maybe every day, and tries to apply it to your life, if you're a Christian who attends church regularly, you are in the minority because the church has become less and less resilient. Less and less are we holding on to God. And that's a problem for us. Willow Creek, a large church in America, part of the relevant stream of churches, they did a survey a number of years ago among their members to find out what was helping Christians grow. Because they you know, run all kinds of fantastic courses and groups and services and music styles, everything. And the question was, what's helping Christians grow? And the answer was, what helps Christians grow? 
is the Christians who know how to read the Bible for themselves, apply it to their lives and live it. Those are the Christians that grow. It's really as basic as that. And that came as a surprise to them. And it's a challenge for us. See, if we become a church that is resilient in the face of a post-Christian culture that would look to colonize the church, if we become resilient, we're not only are we able to hold our ground, we're also able to fulfill the ministry that God's called us to. We're able to become successful. In the last two verses in 2 Timothy, Paul says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and at the time of my departure has come. He's approaching death. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul sees success within his reach. And he defines for us what success for the church is. We're an age that's obsessed with success. Give me success. I want overnight success that doesn't take 20 years. Give me, over, give me success. I want it. What do I need to do? There are dozens and dozens of books that you can buy on how to have a successful life or a successful business. For Paul, he says success is faithfully upholding and holding on to the truth and then passing it to the next generation and saying, I did it. Your go. Because it's the word of God that is a two-edged sword. It's the word of God that's able to divide bone from marrow and pierce the thoughts and hearts of, uh, of the human race. It's the word of God that has power. Success is being faithful to this message, not changing it to suit the culture that you're in. You know, some parts of the world, the Bible's message on equality is radically countercultural and offensive and needs to be preached. In other parts of the world, to talk about God divinely choosing and electing some people for salvation is not controversial at all. In the West, it is. In some parts of the world, what the Bible teaches about sexual ethics and relationship, that's not controversial at all. In our society, it is. And so the temptation for us is different than for them. In our culture, in our context, the temptation is to want to change this as much as we can to fit the culture that we're in. Well, it depends who we're looking to get our reward from. Because Paul saw success and he saw reward coming. But it wasn't reward from the world. He'd spent many years rotting in a Roman prison cell. They weren't rewarding him for preaching the gospel. He said, there is stored up for me the crown of righteousness. He saw success from God. That a church fulfills its ministry when it is concerned with getting a reward from God and not from its culture or society. A church becomes successful when it's willing to be faithful to the message that we've been entrusted with. It's not ours to change. Now, Jesus is the Word of God. Word of God in flesh, indwelt, living among us. Shows us how the, the words of this book look when they are enacted by a human being. And Jesus himself I suppose in a different way from Ezekiel, but echoing, echoing a similar idea of eat this book. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he broke bread and gave it to his disciples and said, eat this. 
in remembrance of me, my body broken for you. Drink this wine, my blood poured out for you. That the church ever since then, when we eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ, when we take the bread and the juice, we are remembering and enacting that fact that the word of God comes not just to the world, but it comes to live inside us as the church. And that we're to uphold that and honor that as much as we can. So we're going to respond together this morning by breaking bread. Uh, The tables, there's two at the back, two at the front, one at the back. And as we do this, it's our response as a church to say, God, I'm going to do my theology humbly before you, assuming I'm wrong and you're right. I'm going to do it in community. I'm going to ask, what's the church globally think about this? And I'm going to look for success as defined by you, not as success defined by my culture. Let's pray together.